Welcome to Episode 2 of Final Argument, The Disappearance of Ray Gricar, District Attorney. I'm going to tell you about the forensics that were done on Mr. Gricar's car after it was found. And I'm also going to start to introduce evidence that will show you how his car played an important role in the story of his disappearance. What do I mean by that? Well, as we go along, I want you to keep in mind something about Mr. Gricar's Mini Cooper. I believe his car played a bigger role in this story than anyone has any idea. And as I tell this story, keep that car in the front of your mind, okay? The car in itself is like a character in this whole play. Ray Gricard disappeared on April 15, 2005. Now I'm going to take you back to April 16, 2005. Trooper Troy Hickman of the Pennsylvania State Police found the Mini Cooper. He was driving north on Water Street in Lewisburg, which is on the west bank of the Susquehanna River, when he spotted the car sitting in a parking lot. Now, if you're not familiar with this part of Pennsylvania, you can see maps of the area on my website at rakericard.com. Earlier in the day, a be on the lookout alert, or BOLO in police jargon, had been issued for a missing person driving a red and white Mini Cooper with a license plate Papa Foxtrot Oscar PFO. The BOLO was for Ray Gricard, the district attorney of Center County, Pennsylvania. There were few details. Center County, by the way, is the westward neighbor of Union County, where Lewisburg is located. Trooper Hickman knew that Gricard lived in the small town of Belfont, which is the Center County seat. It's a little over 60 miles west of Lewisburg. Gricard had called his live-in girlfriend from his cell phone a little after 11 on the morning of Friday, April 15th, to say he was taking the day off and that he was going for a drive on Pennsylvania Route 192. But by 11.30 that night, she had called 911 to report him missing. When Trooper Hickman pulled into the parking lot and saw the license plate, he knew it was the missing Center County DA's car. And that's when a chain of events were set into motion. He radioed his find to his dispatch man, who then called Trooper Robert Brown at his home. Brown was the forensics expert. After that, dispatch called the Belfont Police Department and told them that they located their missing district attorney's car and where it had been found. About half an hour later, Brown showed up armed with his kit. The car was found just after 6.30 in the evening, and there wasn't a lot of daylight left to work with. But he noted on the police report that the Mini was overlaid with a thin film of dust, which meant it probably hadn't been moved in the last 12 hours. Then he photographed the car from all angles. Its windows and sunroof were locked. In 2005, the police there, at least, didn't have the tool they needed to open a car like a Mini Cooper. So one of them called a local locksmith. And while they were waiting for him to get there, they looked around the perimeter of the car, but they didn't see any shoe prints or tire tracks or any signs of struggle. 
Trooper Brown examined the car surfaces for hairs and fibers, but he came up with nothing. Then they got their flashlights out and they trained their beams through the windows to see what was inside the car. But there wasn't anything out of the ordinary there either. Just a Motorola cell phone that was resting in the cup holder on the dashboard. There was a round console next to the gear shift with a tin of cinnamon breath mints, Listerine pocket packs, and Eclipse gum. A rear passenger cup holder held a bottle of Northern Clear Spring water that looked to be about one-third to one-half full. Now this part of the forensic study took a little over an hour, and by then it was completely dark. But what they needed now was a locksmith to meet them at the nearest state police barracks and to have the Mini Cooper towed there. So someone called Buck's Towing in Lewisburg, and shortly after that, a man named Gary Bertinelli heard his cell phone ring. He was across town and just getting ready to have dinner with his family at his favorite Chinese restaurant. He had to answer because he was on call. It was Gary's boss calling him, and Gary told me he sounded excited. This wasn't a call for roadside assistance or a flat tire, or that somebody got their keys locked in their car. Gary had to leave dinner to tow for the Pennsylvania State Police. Gary told me his boss said it was something about a district attorney's car that had been abandoned. So Gary took off to get the flatbed, which he needed, because the DA's car was locked and the state police couldn't get inside of it. He said that on his way to get the tow truck, he started to hear police sirens coming from all directions, and he said he had a pretty good idea at that point that what he was doing had something to do with those sirens. Lewisburg is a relatively quiet town, and excitement usually revolves around something big going on at nearby Bucknell University but not on this night. So as Gary described it to me, the sirens were cutting through, and he said it was like all hell broke loose. Cop cars were everywhere, and the sirens were deafening. Those were his words. He got the tow truck and went a few blocks to where the Mini Cooper was sitting. He told me he jumped down out of his truck and made his way through the bystanders that had gathered. He remembered that many of them were saying that the car looked so unusual, and when he saw the Mini, he thought the same thing. He went over to the first group of police officers he saw, and he asked them what was going on. And one of them said the car belonged to a district attorney from Center County. Another cop told him that the guy had been missing since the night before. Some of the bystanders that I interviewed who were there that night said they heard a couple of cops say that the guy was probably off with a woman somewhere. Gary headed over towards the Mini Cooper, and one of the officers said, hold on, don't touch anything. You have to wear latex gloves. Gary told me they made him put on three pairs of latex gloves, which he remembered because they were really tight. And he said it was a warm spring evening, it was humid, and it wasn't very comfortable. I asked Gary if these guys thought he was off with another woman. Why did they make him wear three pairs of gloves? But Gary didn't have an answer for that. By now, there were a dozen or so people from the neighborhood who had come out to see what was going on, some of whom I've interviewed. But they all told me that it was right around this point that all the sirens were cut and things got very, very quiet. They couldn't hear what any of the police were saying at that point. Gary told me he hooked a chain to the underside of the carriage of the Mini Cooper and then he took a winch and he pulled the car onto the flatbed. 
The whole time he was doing this, he heard the bystanders talking and saying what a cute little car it was and how unusual it looked. Many of them said they had never seen a car like this before. And that was true. Many of them had never seen a Mini Cooper before because this was the year 2005. Yeah, I know, Mini Coopers are everywhere now. But in 2005, on that day in history, there were only three other Mini Coopers registered in all of Northeast and Central Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is a big state. You see, for many people watching what was going on that night, and maybe even a few cops, they had never seen a car like this. It was a real showstopper. It was like spotting a rare bird that had come in from another world. Now the police started going back to their vehicles, and one of the state police officers told Gary that he had to take the car to the Milton Police Barracks, which was just across the Susquehanna River, only a few miles away. You can see this all on the map at raygricar.com. Gary was given a police escort, but they didn't put their sirens on again, and nobody was racing at this point. Gary said this was not the kind of Friday night he had been looking forward to, and he was getting hungry. But he got the Mini Cooper to the barracks, and he put it inside the impound lot. Gary loved telling me about the old trick in the tow truck trade, where he sprayed WD-40 on the aluminum bed of the truck behind the wheels of the Mini, and he said the car slid off like it was on ice. With his job done, he wrote up the bill for the tow and waved it around to see who was going to pay for it. A state police officer and a Belfont cop both stepped forward to get the bill, but Gary couldn't remember who ultimately picked it up. I think maybe he just wanted to go home by then to see if his wife brought back some takeout from the China King. Next, the Mini Cooper was ready to be processed for fingerprints. Trooper Brown went over the complete exterior of the car and found several latent prints on the driver's window. He also managed to find a print from the driver's door handle. These prints were later ruled out because they belonged to Ray Gricar, Patty Fornicola, and a secretary who worked at the Center County Courthouse. Almost an hour and a half later, John Prokop from A1 Lock and Key of Lewisburg arrived. He opened the Mini. Mr. Prokop told me that this model of car wasn't going to open with the usual tools that police always carry in their cars. It could only be opened with a bladder-like device that works like a blood pressure cuff, he explained, where the flat side of the cuff is wedged into what little space there is between the door and the frame. And then he said, you just pump air into it and the pressure pops the door open. I asked him if the police had asked him to wear latex gloves before he touched the car, but he said they didn't. And before he went any further, I stopped him and asked him if he remembered what the car smelled like when he opened it. Well, he thought for a few seconds and he said, it had that new car smell, which makes sense because the Mini Cooper was less than a year old. So it still had that just off the lot scent. Mr. Prokop said he finished at that point and wrote up his bill. A Belfont police officer stepped forward to take the bill and then he thanked him and said goodnight. Once the car was opened, the first thing the police went for was Ray Gricar's county-issued Motorola cell phone to see if it was turned on, but it wasn't. Next, they photographed the interior of the car. 
the ashtray didn't have any cigarette butts. In fact, there were no traces of anyone ever having smoked in the car. Now, let me make a point here. After Ray Gricar went missing, a story that was widely circulated throughout the press said that when his car was opened, the police noted the smell of cigarette smoke from inside the car. It was also reported that traces of cigarette ash were found on the floor of the passenger side of the Mini Cooper. And part of that in itself was very unusual because Ray Gricar was not a smoker. I talked to people who knew him and they said he detested smoking. He didn't want to be around anyone who was smoking. And some of his colleagues told me he didn't even like people smoking around the outside of the Belfont courthouse where he had his office but he didn't make an issue of it. Still, the general consensus among people close to him knew that he hated the smell of cigarettes and that he had expressed on a few occasions what a health hazard it was. So I made it a point to follow up with Mr. Prokop at a later date because I knew he was the first person to open that car, not the Pennsylvania State Police. And he said again that when he opened it, it had that new car smell. And when I pressed him further, he said his nose never picked up even the slightest trace of cigarette smoke in the Mini. So go and look at this police report on raygricar.com. You can see for yourself that nowhere on the report is there a mention of the smell of cigarette smoke in the car, and there is no mention of cigarette ash being found or taken into evidence. I wonder why the press were told that the car smelled like cigarettes and that traces of ash were found in the car. Do you think that putting that kind of information out there would bolster the idea that Mr. Grickar had someone in his car the day he disappeared or that he allowed a smoker to get close enough to the car that their ash fell onto the floor of the car? If either is true, then why wasn't any of that noted in the police report? Or the cigarette ash taken into evidence? It wasn't. Check it all out for yourself at raygricar.com. What the state police did find, however, was $5.69 in the center console ashtray. It was Trooper Brown who processed the entire inside of the car. And do you know how many fingerprints he found on the Mini's interior surfaces? Zero. That's right. Not one fingerprint was found inside of Ray Grickar's car. The only fingerprints they found were on the label area of the Northern Clear water bottle that was in the back seat cup holder. The state police report says, quote, the interior of the vehicle was processed for latent fingerprints, with no quality latent fingerprints being developed." Unquote. Not one print? Not even on the tin of cinnamon breath mints or the pack of gum? Now think about this. If a forensics expert were to go over the inside of your car right now for fingerprints, do you think they'd find a few? I know they'd find a lot inside my car. Don't you find that a little strange? Do you think it's possible that the interior of the car was wiped clean? If that's true, 
They did a very good job. They got them all, except for the ones on the water bottle that were of no use because they were too smudged. They found two umbrellas under the driver's seat rear floor area, along with a plastic pack with a cell phone charger cord and a black t-shirt that read Pennsylvania Homicide Investigators Association. The glove compartment had a manual for the car, the car's registration, and some brochures for antique shops. Trooper Brown checked the trunk, but all he found was a small bag with emergency roadside equipment. The odometer reading on the car was not taken, and neither was the amount of gas left in the tank noted on the police report. Ray Gricar was relatively unknown to the troopers that examined his car that night. It's likely their paths had never crossed before because he was a district attorney whose jurisdiction was so far away. But let me ask you this. Do you think any red flags went up for any of them when the only fingerprints they found inside the car were on the water bottle? Did anybody stop to think that no matter how neat a person is, no matter how tidy or fastidious, no matter how much pride a person takes in their car, did anybody stop to say, hey, wait, nobody's that neat? Did anyone ask why is this car so clean? The only reference in the state police report to the car's condition is that the car looks generally neat. Do you think these questions didn't enter their minds because they had already bought into the theory that Ray Grickar was off on a rendezvous with some woman? Many assumptions were made during the course of the investigation into the disappearance of Ray Grickar and the one that he was safe and well and in the company of another woman on this warm April night was the first one. Please join me the next time on Final Argument, The Disappearance of District Attorney Ray Gricar. In Episode 3, I'm going to tell you who this man really was. And over at raygricar.com, you'll be able to hear my interview with a leading handwriting expert who analyzed samples of Mr. Gricar's writing that came straight out of the case file. I'll let you know when that episode and that interview is out. It's soon, I promise. Stay tuned. And thanks for listening.